invite you to take out your Bibles if you have them and turn to the book of Romans this morning. Romans chapter 6. We've been uh, studying the Gospel of Mark, and this morning we're going to take uh, a slight uh, break from that so that we can focus a little bit on baptism. Caleb uh, asked for uh, certain passages to be read this morning and uh, certain things for us to reflect on, so if you don't like it, you can blame him, all right? Uh, baptism, what is it? Well, traditionally, and still in many churches, Baptism and the ceremony of baptism is a naming ceremony. You name your child at baptism. That naming has uh, Jewish origins. It, it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 17 uh, when God took Abram uh, and renamed him after circumcision, uh, took him from Abram and made him Abraham. Now, the, the name Abram means father of many. And Abraham means father of many nations. God, uh, by his covenant right, by his federal headship, over Abram could name him what he wanted. And he renamed Abram, Abraham. Baptism is, at its essence, at its root, fundamentally, it is a naming ceremony whereby God gives us a new name. Names have meanings. Don't they? I, I love to look at the meaning of names. Uh, Schmidt, y'all know what Schmidt means? Do you know? It's the German word for smith. You know what smith means? Blacksmith. Somewhere way back, someone was a blacksmith, and that's how y'all got your name. What about Kelly? A name that's near and dear to my heart. Do you know what Kelly means? It's the Gaelic term or Irish term for warrior. Although certain uh, new research has suggested that it means something else. It could mean churchgoer. Right? How appropriate. We have lots of Kellys here today at church. Well, what does Vivian mean? Caleb and Hannah. Caleb and Hannah, two very Jewish Hebrew names, by the way, have given their daughter Vivian, uh, the name Vivian. What does Vivian mean? It simply means... Alive, And she is very much alive, especially at night when she doesn't want to go to bed. <laughs> uh, we've given our son the name Alexander. Do you know what Alexander means? It means defender of men. Names have meanings. And in baptism, we're reminded of our identity in Christ. And in this passage today, Romans 6, 1 through 14, it's all about who we are in Christ. Christ Jesus. It's all about our identity in him. And Paul is reminding these Roman Christians about the gospel of Jesus Christ, about the good news of what he has done for them. And that is the gospel. That is what is good news. Not what you do, but what Christ has done for you. And then after he deals with what Christ has done for us through faith in him, he tells us some things that we should do. You can't invert that order. You can't say, I'm a Christian because of what I do, and that makes me who I am. No, Paul and all of the writers of the Bible understand that it's who you are first, by your nature, who God makes you, and then what you do that follows. Let me read this for us. 
this is Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. This is God's good and kind and gracious word to all of us this morning. Hear God's word. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask for his help and understanding. Father, we thank you for giving us this, your word. We thank you that by your word we have life and life abundantly. We pray that you would help us to understand this very complicated passage of scripture. That you would clear the cobwebs out of our mind. That you would clear all the fog that is there. That we would see the glory of your son Jesus Christ, the one with whom you are well pleased. So that we can be pleased with him and his finished work as well. And we pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. This morning I want to look at this passage in three ways. First of all, we're going to see that we are in Christ dead to sin. Secondly, we're going to see that we are in Christ alive to God. And then thirdly, in Christ we are obedient to grace. In verses 1 through 4, we see that we are dead to sin. Now we are dropping into this incredible book, the book of Romans. A book that I said I will not preach from as a series until I'm a much older pastor because it's so complicated. Now, we're doing a parachute drop right into the middle of it. It's almost like we're dropping into uh, this thought. And, and it's like we're being dropped at, like from 30,000 feet right into the middle of the Mississippi River. And then we got to swim in it. Okay? So we're going to try to keep our head above water in this. But we really are picking up in midstream, in mid-thought. Let me give you just real quickly the context that Paul is writing into Paul's purpose in Romans 1, 6, and 17, he tells us why he wrote all 16 chapters of the book of Romans. And the purpose is 
to talk about the gospel, to explain and remind the Roman Christians the gospel of God's grace. And he says in Romans 1, 16 and 17, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the news of Jesus and what Jesus came to do is the power of God unto salvation. Nothing else in this world can save, according to Paul, but it, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he is explaining that gospel. In, ver- in chapters 1 through 4, everything that's come right before what we, we talked about, he is explaining justification by faith in Jesus Christ. The way that all men, Jew, Gentile, pagan, religious... Everyone can only be saved through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. In chapters 1 through 4, that's his explanation. We are all uh, sinners and we fall short of the glory of God. And if anyone wants to be saved, you must believe in Jesus Christ. Now, in chapter 5, a change happens. He begins to talk about the implication of salvation. Not just what does it mean or how are we saved, but what does it mean that we're saved. So he talks about what we call assurance of salvation. In chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, he explains our assurance of salvation. What does it mean that we're saved? And he explains things like, what do we do now? Because we're saved and now we have this whole life to live. And what does it mean for us to live our life as Christians? In chapters 6 and 7, that's primarily what Paul is dealing with. Now in chapter 5, right before this in chapter 6, what we just read... Paul distinguishes between two types of people. He says, there's only two types of people in the world. There's only two types of people. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. He says, most everyone is in Adam, but those who are righteous through faith in Jesus are in Christ. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is that you are in Jesus. Just like I did with the children's sermon And the girl was covered in the robe. We are, if we have faith in Jesus, we are covered in Jesus. We are in Jesus. It's as if we have our Jesus suits on and that's who we are because we are united to Jesus through faith. But those who are in Adam are still in sin. They still suffer the guilt and they're under the wrath of God if you're still in Adam. So two types of people, in Adam and in Christ. Now, the implication of that is, uh, it it really is amazing because um, if you're in Christ, then you're no longer guilty of your sin. Then then God cannot hold anything against you. And that raises questions, logical questions. And that's why Paul asks the questions that he does in verse 1. Look in verse 1 real quick. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? All right, this is a logical objection to the gospel that Paul has been preaching. It's logical because if you're in Christ and you're covered in Christ and you have union with Christ, then there's nothing to fear from God. And the objection is, well, doesn't that lead to what's called antinomianism? That's a big word. I want you to use it as part of your vocabulary. Use it this week to tell people how smart you are, right? Antinomianism, what does it mean? It just simply means against the law. And Paul is the first one that's charged with being against the law. Because if you're not saved by works, if you're not saved by your hard work, then you're saved by another's hard work. And the concern is that that will lead you to give up on living a good and and moral life. And so they charge Paul with saying that you don't have to worry about how you live your life. 
That's the first question. That's the the first logical objection to Paul's gospel. Uh, and it's and it's and so that's the objection. And then the the question is raised: Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He said, because we sinned a bunch, God had to save us a bunch. Because we had a lot of sin, God has to give a lot of grace. And so the logical objection is, well, shouldn't we continue in sin so that we get more grace? It's kind of like the rat in that experiment where they give him a stimulant in that little water bottle. And all the rat has to do is hit the button and it gets more stimulant. And that's the idea here. Well, shouldn't we be just like that rat and sin more and more and more so that God gives more and more and more grace? It's a logical question. And Paul gives a strong answer. Look at what he says. He says, by no means. That's what it says in my translation, anyway. In the Greek, it's, it's really, I, I remember a few Greek words from seminary, but this is the one that I really remember. Because I had a friend, Kurt Cooper, that went around saying it all the time. He would scream out, Meganoito, Meganoito, Meganoito. And he, when he preached, he always tried to work in Meganoito into his sermons. And I remember it well, and that's what it means. It means by no means. It means never. You cannot conceive of this thing being true. Should we go on to, in sin that grace may abound? Meganoito. Basically, it means this. That is an absurd question. Why is it absurd? Um, it's absurd because he says this. It's, it's like trying to, to make or trying to conceive of a round square. Can you do that? Can you conceive of a round square? No, you can't. It does, it's absurd. It doesn't make sense. To say that a Christian will go on in sin is just like a round square. It doesn't make sense. It's absurd. And here's the reason that he gives. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? He says, no, you can't continue in sin if you're a Christian. It's impossible to do it because if you are a Christian through faith in Jesus Christ, you are dead to sin. It's an absurd thing to think that dead men can continue to sin. And then he gives this. He says, it's like baptism, and he gives baptism as a picture. He says, think about it. You're baptized into Christ, and and the symbol there is one from death to life. In Christ, or in baptism, you're baptized into his death. Right? And, in verse 4, you're told, we were buried, there, uh, buried th- therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So, not only have you been baptized into his death, you've been baptized into his resurrection as well. Um, This is not saying that baptism saves, and this is where Caleb would like for me to speak for about another two hours on this. Um, I'm not going to do that. I have wonderful resources on this, uh, because what Paul is not talking about here is our water baptism saving us. He's saying being in Christ is the thing that saves us, because our baptism can't save. But what can? Jesus. Jesus saves by his death. Jesus saves by his resurrection, and so in Christ you are, you are saved. If you want some more information, I have resources. Come to me. I'll give them to you. Caleb, that's mostly for you. So, we are baptized into Christ's death and resurrection. We can't go on in sin because we're dead men. And we've been raised to new life in Christ. We are dead to sin in verses 1 through 4. But secondly, he says, because we are in Christ in baptism, we are now alive to God in verses 5 through 10. 
Uh, Paul centers everything about Christianity in our union with Christ. He anchors everything, all of his arguments, in Jesus Christ and us being in Jesus. Verses 1 through 4, it's his negative answer. Can you continue in sin? Absolutely not. Why? Because you're dead. In verses 5 through 10, here's the positive answer. Not only are you dead, but you are alive to God. We are alive to God and we are resurrected in Christ if we are truly in him. In verses 6 and 7, I'm going to do this fairly quickly. In verses 6 and 7, this is what he says. Look, our old nature, our old self was crucified with Christ. All right. In verses 8 and 9, he says, uh, look at 8 and 9. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. In verses 8 and 9, if we are dead in Christ, we also are alive in Christ. And then in verse 10, this beautiful uh, saying, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God, and that is true of you as well. If you were in Christ, you, you died to sin, and now you live to God. He's talking here about our identity in Christ, who we truly and really are. And what he's saying is that for the Christian, a drastic change has taken place, a, a fundamental change, a, a change that is deep down, that has changed your, your very nature. This is what I'll call spiritual alchemy. Spiritual alchemy, you know what alchemy is, right? It's in the Middle Ages, uh, doctors and philosophers and all these people, they tried to take uh, lead and turn it into gold. Because if you can fundamentally change the nature of lead and make it into gold, then you have endless resources. And that's what they were trying to do. Well, essentially what Paul is saying is that God did spiritual alchemy on our hearts. He took our lead and made it into gold. It's transforming one thing to another. He took our deadness in sin and made it alive to God. Now, literature is full of beautiful pictures of this, but, but one of the best ones that I can think of and one that I, my mind often goes back to to picture this drastic fundamental transformation is found in Les Mis. Um, now, some of you, especially the men, you think, Les Mis, isn't that a musical? And yes, it is. But I've got great news for you. It was a book 200 years before it was a musical. Now, some of you are saying, a book? That's even worse, okay? Well, I've got even better news for you. The best picture of this that I can think of uh, is the movie version that is not the musical. And the main star is Liam Neeson. And he is an action star, so... Guys, if you want to watch the Liam Neeson version of Les Mis, go watch it. And it is a beautiful picture of this drastic transformation. There are three different sections of that story. And the first section is the prisoner, is the man the prisoner. He is enslaved to his sin. And that's the picture that, um, that Victor Hugo gives for us, that the man is enslaved to sin. And then he's paroled. He gets out. And you would think that after he is paroled that he would be freed from his, from his sin, but he's not. There's another picture where the main character is, um, uh, he steals some, some uh, very valuable candlesticks and various things from a religious man, from a bishop. And instead of being charged with that crime, the bishop lets him go free. And you would think at that point, actually the bishop says, look, I have bought your redemption. And if you're listening to that, you think, well, he's set free. He truly is set free. 
But the problem is, in the story, the man continues to be dogged and enslaved. He is not set free because he's on the run. He has to change his name. He has to do various things to hide from the law. But the law always finds him out. Everywhere he goes, he has to continue to run and to hide. Nothing he does, none of the good he does ever overcomes the bad man that he was. Until, and I won't give it away, until the law is done away with. And the beautiful picture that is given to us is that at the very end of the story, the man receives his true name, Jean Valjean. That's why I like the book version of it more than I like the musical, because the musical calls him Jean Valjean all the way through. But the book, you never find out what his name is until the very end. He is Jean Valjean because the law has done away with. And this is the picture to us as well in Christ The law is no more. We are dead to the law. We are now under grace. Have you gone through that change? Have you been brought from death to life? Has the spiritual alchemy been done in your heart? Are you in Christ? Are you his? Have you been brought from death to life? And remember, this isn't something that you do. This isn't by your works. This is only by the work of God transforming your heart. Now, there are two types of people in this room. Just like there are only two types of people in the world, there are only two types of people in this room. There are Christians and non-Christians. There are those that are in Christ and those that are in Adam. There are not sinners and non-sinners. Let me put it like this. In Christ... There are Christian adulterers in this room. There are men and women who have taken the oaths that they took before God and witnesses and have broken those oaths. And yet, because they're in Christ, they no longer bear the weight and the guilt of that sin. And there are non-Christian adulterers in this room who have taken their oath before God, who have broken that oath and still bear the weight of that sin. You see the difference? Both sinners, one has had their sin dealt with because they're dead to sin and alive to God. And that's what it means to be a Christian. It means to be set free from the law. It means to be set free from the sin and our guilt. Now, the third thing that I want us to see here is now in verse uh, 11, verses 11 through 14, that this makes us obedient to God's grace. This is, um, this is an opportunity for us to reflect on the heart of Christianity. What does it mean uh, to be a Christian? Now, a lot of us have come into here, this room this morning, thinking that what it means to be a Christian is to do a lot of really good stuff, is to be really good. It's, it's the list of do's and don'ts. Do these things, don't do these things, and that makes you a Christian. But if that's what you think, then you don't read the Bible, or you haven't read the Bible very closely. Because if I were to do a survey, uh, just to do a, a democratic survey of this room and ask you, Here in the book of Romans, how many times up to chapter 6 do you think Paul has given commands? Probably most of us would say that that almost all of Romans is full of commands that Paul gives to, to his people. But Okay, let me just tell you something that maybe is surprising to you. Look in verse 11. In verse 11, this is the first verse 
in the book of Romans that Paul has told you something you should do. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's the first time in six chapters that Paul has told you something you need to do. Because Paul is not, does not care about what you do primarily. He says it's not about what you do because Christianity isn't about you. It's about Jesus Christ and what Christ has done for you. Because if you don't know what Christ has done, if you don't know the good news, then any of the advice that you get after that won't matter because you'll still be dead in your sin and rebellion to God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is about what he has done. And for six chapters, Paul has been explaining what Christ has done. And now, after all those things, he gives a command in verse 11. What should you do? What is this thing that you should do? He says, and this is going to be another thing that blows your mind. Christians should think. So you also must consider. That's another way of saying think. You should think about yourself in a certain way. It's basically the word logic that he uses there. You should consider yourself a certain way. If you're in Christ, if you are a Christian, then think about yourself in this way. The Christian life is basically the life of thinking. Not doing, not getting your hands dirty, but thinking. And this is what Paul, his first command in six chapters, he says, think, consider And that word essentially means to reckon or to reconcile. This is a bookkeeping term. This is a term that accountants use. If you need anybody to explain it, Mr. Clyde will gladly explain what this word means to you. It's to reconcile yourself in the way that God sees you. It's the word that you would use when you talk about reconciling your bank account. Whenever you go and you do that and you take out your checkbook, if you still use those, and you, and you write down all the money that you spent, what you're doing is you're finding out the truth about what is in your bank account. And this is what Paul says to us. He says, if you're a Christian, you need to know the truth and reconcile yourself with the truth. You are no longer in sin. You are dead to sin. Reckon yourself dead to sin, therefore. Think about that. Think about what God has done for your bank account, not your physical bank account, because for some of you, you have nothing in it. But your spiritual bank account, what has God done for you in Christ? You have all that you need in that account. You can never outdraw the grace of God. And Paul says, reckon yourself in that way because it's the truth if you are in Christ. Look at your account if you're a Christian. You are free from sin. So think about that. Reckon it. Consider it to be true because it is true. And then he says two more things very quickly in verse 12. Because you reckon yourself that way and because sin is no longer uh, has any dominion, don't let it reign in your mortal bodies. Don't let sin reign. You've been, you've been set free from the power of sin. Then don't let it reign. And then secondly, he says in verse 13, uh, don't present yourself or your members to sin as instruments for unrighteous, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. In other words, in everything that you do, whether at church or whether at home, whether at work or whether at play, when you're driving your car, when you're stuck in traffic, when you're disciplining your children, when you're doing all of the, the regular mundane things that you do, if you're a Christian, 
Offer your body as a service to God in all of those mundane things that you do. Because your life is not your own. You live it for the glory of God. And that's simply what Paul says. Don't let sin have dominion over you. So if it's true that you're dead to sin, then act like it. Very simple. Don't give yourself to sin. And then secondly, um, just offer yourself to God. And in everything that you do, do it for Him and for His glory. Because he says in verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you. And that's good news for Christians this morning. Sin will have no dominion. It cannot, it will not, God will not allow it. You have been set free from the power of sin. The presence of sin is still in your life and yet sin has no more power over you. So reckon that to be true because it is. In conclusion, I just want to ask again that question. What's in a name? What's, what's in your name? What name have you been given? Think back again to Genesis 17 and Abram, the father of many, being, being told now that he is no longer the father of many, but the father of many nations. Do you know how many sons Abram had whenever he, his name was changed? He had one illegitimate son, the son, not the son of promise. Everywhere that Abram went, and people would ask his name, what's your name? Well, it's Abram, father of many. He would receive ridicule, and people would say, you don't have any children. How silly is that? And I compare it to this. Those of you who are here who claim the name of Christ, you you walk around and you say, "I'm I'm a Christian, and people laugh, and they say, you? You're a Christian? Well, how would Abraham respond, especially when Abraham's name was changed, the father of many to the father of many nations, because God really ramped that up. He said, no longer are people going to make fun of you because you're the father of just a few, but now you're the father of many. Well, you know how Abraham would respond? He would say, yeah, in myself, I am not the father of many. I'm not even the father of many nations. I, I have one son. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, because he has changed my name, I am the father of many nations. And you know what? It is true. Abraham, way back then, was the father of many nations. And we're here today, and we all claim Abraham as our father in Christ. What about you? What's your name? Have you received the name Christian? All Christian means is little Christ, little Jesus. When people look at your life, what do they say? Little Christ, you, you are nothing like Jesus. And you say, in myself I'm not, but by the grace of God I am. That is your only hope. It's the only way to have that name is by his grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this message this morning. And I pray that it would be true of us by the work of the Spirit. pray that we would be found in Christ that we would bear his image, that we would be his people by your finished work. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.